0: Good morning guys. Some morning I'm just going to just try it out and see how long we can go by just chit-chat. Maybe we can do it for the whole hour, you know? We, we enjoy it so much. Hey, uh, those of you sitting toward the front, you can tell that these stairs haven't been carpeted yet, but they're getting ready to be. And Larry Jensen last night, who presented, uh, made a wonderful presentation on the city of Memphis, and I think it was taped. Am I okay? I think it was taped, so if you want to hear it, you can do that, and I, I encourage you to. It was a great presentation, but he had some markers up here, and they're all still up here, these little black sharpies, and he said, know, uh, yeah, this isn't quite the cornerstone idea, but it's it's close to it. You know, we're going to cover this with a carpet, but if you would please write a prayer up here for the Church of Christ or this city, just write it up here, and then one day, your kids will tear off the carpet and say, oh, look at all this, what's this all about? And then see the prayers of the people here, so we invite you to do that, all these sharpies, there are about 10 or 11 sharpies up here, so just come on up and amen, guys, and 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 write a brief prayer, and put your name on it. Maybe your grandchildren will realize that you were a Christian after all, who knows? <laughs> uh, okay, let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, which by the way, uh, Larry said was sort of his theme verse. Uh, he He had heard a presentation on Jeremiah 29, 20 years ago, and he said it really changed his life. I think it did domestically and internationally. And I think we'll see why when we look at it. Uh, But it's a really important text. Let me tell you why before we look at it. You know, when the New Testament was written, uh, the Christians were in such a small, besieged minority that you don't get really anything in the New Testament much about political engagement. I mean, the only thing that we get is that you guys who are in a minority, you be sure to submit uh, in the Lord to the civil magistrate and don't misbehave. I mean, that's basically the instructions we get. Don't, Don't bring a bad name on God, Christ, or His people by misconduct and be sure that you're obeying the civil authorities because they're ordained by God, even as cruel as they were, Nero, for example. So we get those kinds of instructions in the New Testament, but because we don't really have any political power, you don't get instructions much about how to engage civic life or what to do with nationhood or how to think about it. So we kind of scramble to put together by inference our views of Christian politics or the Christian and the state. Uh, Last week we talked about the man and his world and we saw how big the real world is it's a cosmos made up of 140 billion galaxies and 100 billion solar systems in our galaxy it's a huge place we're living in and we saw what it means to be a little speck of dust a little atom in this vast universe it means we we praise him and we adore him and we we worship him and we serve him today we want to talk about how we live in our nation a man in his country a man in his city How do you live with a civic world? Well, since the New Testament, uh, for obvious reasons, is limited in this kind of literature, it's very helpful if we can turn to the Old Testament and find some instructions. But the problem with the Old Testament, in this respect, is that it's written to a people who had a theocracy, by and large. And we don't live in a theocracy. We live in a pluralistic democracy. So you can't just take the laws that are given to Israel and import them uh, without some careful political work, intellectual work, to apply them to a pluralistic state. However, there is one instance where we have some instructions for Israel apart from their living in the Holy Land. And that's the text we have today. So here you actually have Israel in dispersion. And you have instructions to Israel in dispersion. And of course, how does Peter... In 1 Peter chapter 1, describe us. We're exiles in dispersion because our home is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. We're all returning to Jerusalem. Once again, the theocracy will be established. But right now, the the citizens of the theocracy are scattered throughout various pagan nations. And we're supposed to figure out, as citizens of a theocracy, how to live outside the theocracy. And here we have it in Jeremiah 29. Because what has happened is, as God predicted, if Israel was unfaithful when they went to the Holy Land, He would disperse them. He would put them into exile. The northern kingdom has already been conquered by Assyria and largely taken into captivity. And then, beginning right around 600 B.C., you have multiple invasions of the Babylonians on the southern kingdom. And one of those key invasions was 597 B.C. The definitive one, the final one, was 586 B.C. That's when finally the temple was destroyed, Jerusalem was completely leveled, and pretty much all of the leaders in Jerusalem were taken into exile to Babylon. But 597 was one of those moments when they had been invaded, their king had been taken, and many of the leaders had been taken. So these people were taken off into Babylon. Now here they are. How are we supposed to live? Babylon now is where we live We're we're not citizens of Babylon, but we live in Babylon. So what are we supposed to do? Well, Jeremiah, the prophet, was still in Jerusalem facing all of the destruction of that city. He faithfully preached while that city was coming down around his ears. And it's a wonderful model for us. If we're preaching the gospel, the culture continues to oppose it. The culture self-destructs. We're going to be right there proclaiming gospel while our nation falls down around our ears. That's our duty. That's what Jeremiah did. He was faithful to the end, finally taken off into Egypt. But Jeremiah writes instructions to God's people in Babylon. And he had to oppose some false prophets. We'll get into this because we have false prophets too in the church today. But there were false prophets who were saying to the Israelites, hey, don't worry, God's going to take you right back. Let's just defend ourselves, create a few skirmishes, Um uh, take over I-40 bridge. Let's just do some stuff. Let's just you know, keep the civil authorities at bay. Let's resist and then we'll make our way back. And Jeremiah writes and says, those are false prophets. God did not tell them that. And Jeremiah says, I've got a different message from you. It's a message from the Lord. And this will show you how to live in Babylon in captivity as as basically servants and slaves of the, the Babylonians. So He's writing to them. It's very instructive for all of us, no matter what our background is, no matter what our situation is. You live, if if you're a believer, you live in dispersion in a foreign land. And that's the reason that Jeremiah 29 is so precious to us. You won't find another place in the scriptures where you get these kind of explicit instructions. That's the reason we want to give heed to it when we think about the man and his nation or the man and his city. So let's uh, read. We'll go through verse 23, Uh, 24 following uh, is, is also important, but we're going to just look at the first 23 verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back into this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Because you have said, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, thus says the Lord concerning the king who sits on the throne of David and concerning all the people who dwell in this city, your kinsmen who did not go out with you into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I am sending on them sword, famine, and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and pestilence, and will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, to be a curse, a terror, a hissing, and a reproach among all the nations where I have driven them. Because they did not pay attention to my words, declares the Lord, that I persistently... "'sent to you by my servants, the prophets. "'But you would not listen,' declares the Lord. "'Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles, "'whom I sent away from Jerusalem to Babylon. "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'concerning Ahab the son of Kolah "'and Zedekiah the son of Maasiah, "'who are prophesying a lie to you in my name. "'Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, "'king of Babylon, and he shall strike them down before your eyes.' Because of them, this curse shall be used by all the exiles from Judah in Babylon. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have done an outrageous thing in Israel, they have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives, and they have spoken in my name lying words that I did not command them. I am the one who knows, and I am witness, declares the Lord. Okay. You know, we, uh, no matter what nation you live in, as a believer, you'll find yourself at times getting discouraged. And sometimes you want to attack and be shrill and just say, you know, we can just fix this. Let's just increase our political power. Let's take over. Let's, you know, if you're being oppressed, let's take out guns. Let's throw bricks. Let's do something. Let's take charge of this. That's on the one hand. And uh, let's get some more political action committees going. Let's send letters to the senator. I mean, I I agree with all these lawful things. But on the other hand, we say, you know, I just give up. I just quit. Let's just move to New Zealand, you know. Well, when you get to New Zealand, you'll find out they have problems too. Uh, Everybody has problems. But oftentimes then believers will just withdraw and kind of, you know, create the Christian yellow pages and, you know, stay in their little Christian neighborhood and create the Christian compounds. And let's just try to seal off this wicked world around us. So, both fighting and fleeing are temptations in uh, civic engagement for believers. And the reason is, it it is a wicked and broken world. And the Israelites were in Babylon, they're saying, this is impossible. How do you keep the law of God in this place? Uh, So, their tendency was just not to have anything, as little to do with Babylon as possible. And to listen, they they had tickling, uh, itching ears that would listen to preachers who would tell them? Yeah, this is not going to last long. The Lord's going to take us back. Don't worry about Babylon. To hell with Babylon! Literally, is what the preachers would say. And uh, let's just wait until the Lord gets us back to our city. We'll re- we'll re- rebuild the place. That's what the false prophets were saying. And Jeremiah writes with some very important instruction for you and me, because right now we're. Uh, I just. I've never heard so much complaining out of my mouth and out of yours, about this presidential election. Uh, I've never heard more despair about what's happening in the legislation and in in the White House. I mean, there are bills coming through that uh, could possibly shut down every Christian college I know. That that could happen in the next four years. Uh, and there, there, there are all kinds of things looming before us. And it does make you wonder what a Christian should do. Well, let's think about it. First of all, Roman numeral number 1. If you look at verses 1 through 3, it seems to me really clear that we're being taught that God guides us in every circumstance. If you look at Psalm 139, the psalmist is saying, where, where can I flee from the Lord? Where, where can I go? Far side of the sea? Depths of the earth? No. The Lord is always with you wherever you go. And that's true in every one of your circumstances. I'm about ready to go bankrupt. Where's the Lord? He's right there. My marriage is falling apart. Where's the Lord? He's right there. My son's hooked on drugs. What? Where's the Lord? Right there. And you'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul teaches us there's no temptation that has overtaken man that's not common to man, and there's always a way of escape. There's a way to deal with whatever your situation is. There's not one situation in this room that God doesn't have instructions for and shows you the way through it and perhaps out of it. So you cannot sin your way out of His presence. You can't get in a situation that's too complicated for Him. And here you have one of the worst situations. Your family has been wiped out by foreigners who've invaded you. They've been ruthless. And then in chains, they take you back 800 miles by foot. It's like the Trail of Tears. They're taking you 800 miles by foot to their city and throwing you in some little ghetto and you just hope you have enough to eat for those who have survived it. That's what the situation is and here we see that God is with them. This letter is written to help God's people understand you've not been forgotten, you've not been abandoned and neither are you in a situation where Christian ethics do not apply. You'll see in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul, unlike the pagan ethicists of his own day, and there were plenty of ethicists and some good ethicists among the pagans, but unlike them, Paul not only addresses those who have power, he addresses those who don't have power. He gives explicit instructions to slaves. No pagan ethicist ever did that. And the reason was slaves were beyond ethics. They weren't worth ethics. In God's uh, kingdom, we are all important to Him. It doesn't matter what your status in life is. So whether you have absolutely nothing except debt or you, you have multiple tens of millions of dollars, God has explicit instructions for you. So you cannot go to some situation where the gospel and gospel lifestyle doesn't apply. That's the first thing we're learning here. And so I don't know what your situation is, But remember, God has a particular way He wants you to live and He wants you to walk through this circumstance. And that's far more important than how your circumstances come out. Let me say that again. God has a particular way for you to live and to walk, a way for you to think and act in your circumstance. And doing that is far more important than winning in your circumstance. That's what he's teaching us here. God guides us in every situation. Now, secondly, look at verse 4. And you notice something interesting here. It says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, which teaches us that God places us where we are. If you look at Acts chapter 17, you'll see that God is the one who places us in the place where we live. It's by His providence. You say, well, I chose to come to Memphis. Or my grandfather chose to come to Memphis. That's the reason I'm here. Yeah, true. And you get the same idea up above where we're told in verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar had taken them into exile. Yes, there is human means. Nebuchadnezzar did do that. But what Jeremiah is saying is God has used foolish old Nebuchadnezzar to put you where He wants to put you. And if you made a decision, wise or foolish, to come to Memphis, He used you, wise or foolish, to bring you here. And He used that by His providence to put you where you are. You're here by God's providence, His foreordination, His appointment. He puts everybody where they are in their nations. And He uses human instrumentality to do that. That's the point that's being made here. Jeremiah says, yes, Nebuchadnezzar drove you into exile. God is the one who sent you into exile. Now, we know he did it as an act of judgment, but he also decided who would live and who wouldn't. And he happened to decide that you would live and that you would live in Memphis. That's by his appointment. This is very important because sometimes we wonder why we're here. Sometimes we complain about where we are. Sometimes we have nothing to say about America but something that's that's negative. And... What God is going to show them as we look through this text is that you have to realize you have an assignment. You are salt and light in this particular place. And uh, let's look at how you adopt this particular place as your home and live it out as a Christian man, whether we're talking about the country or the city, either one. Look at the next set of verses, and here we'll get our instructions. Verses 5 through 7 teach us that God commands us to engage in society. Now, you see this, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, where Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. And you can't be effective as salt if you stay in the salt shaker. You have to get out of the salt shaker. You can't be effective as a light if you put a bushel on the light, put a basket over the light, over over the candle. So you take the bushel basket off the light and the light shines into the darkness and brings glory to God. That's our role. So don't complain about the darkness. The darker it gets, the brighter your light is, by contrast. So as the world goes dark, our message is even sharper and more pungent. You know, people are more offended by our message, but it draws more attention than it ever did before. The contrast between what we believe and how we think we should live is even starker today than it was in my youth. And I'm saddened by that for the sake of our culture. But on the other hand, I'm I'm drawing more attention to what I have to say when I say it in, in in mixed company because it's so shocking. God's ways are so different from the way that we're going in culture. So being salt and light is all the more important than it was. So we know this from the Sermon on the Mount. Leave your finger in Jeremiah 29, and I want you for just a moment to turn over to 1 Peter. Uh, If you've got your study Bible, I'm talking about page 2,400 or so. And look at 1 Peter, and you'll see at the very beginning, this first verse, Peter picks up on this language. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles. What a description. Elect exiles. There you go. Of the dispersion, the diaspora. This is a, the, used for the Jewish dispersion or diaspora. And he's talking to Christians. You're the diaspora. You're the ones who are dispersed from Jerusalem, your city. And you're in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And I says, I suggests that you're elect by the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're also exiles by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Both. Turn over a couple of pages in your Bible to 1 Peter 2, verse 11. And here Peter begins to instruct us. Beloved, I urge you as what? Sojourners, be very careful what you think about immigrants especially undocumented immigrants, because that's what you are. You're citizens of another place, and you're here on this planet, and you don't have documents. This is not your home. And furthermore, the Jews were undocumented immigrants into Babylon. And Peter says, Do you Christians understand that's what you are? So we ought to have a natural affinity. Of all the people on the planet, we're the ones with the most natural, or I shall say supernatural affinity with undocumented immigrants. We we understand. So he says to them, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the Babylonians, honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So when they speak of you as evildoers, that you're narrow-minded, that you hate homosexual people, and that you don't like women because you're against abortion, all those things, where they hate you, they'll see your good deeds, that you protect the life of the unborn, that you provide a home for them uh, when they're they're born of unwed mothers, that you take care of those mothers who, as single mothers, choose to keep their infants. And they'll see the Christians doing this even while they're waging war against you verbally. That's what Peter is saying. Keep reading. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So it's going to be President Clinton or President Trump, and you shall honor the president. That's what Peter is saying. That's how exiles live. Turn back now to Jeremiah 29. And let's look at three phases of these instructions. Verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. First of all, he, he commands us to engage in society in the economy. A Look at verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now we have to understand this was very provocative for a Jew. The Jews had been living for about a millennium. Not quite but almost a millennium in the Holy Land. And all their instructions, their way of life, their culture, their ethics, everything was based around first the tabernacle and then the temple and having a holy land where if they obeyed, God would bless, and if they disobeyed, He wouldn't. They, They had a theocratic mentality. The last thing in the world for them would ever be to go off the Holy Land and try to live the Jewish life off the Holy Land. This is very provocative language Jeremiah has given them. It's counterintuitive to them, to the extreme. And so they're thinking, how do we engage this wicked society? That's not what we've been doing. I mean, we've been wicked ourselves, but we were in the church. We were a wicked church. How do you engage a wicked society who has no standards, doesn't have the Ten Commandments, doesn't believe in the existence of it? of God as He is. How do you live in that world? So they were were really shook by this, I'm quite sure. But He says to them, build houses and live in them, plant gardens in their produce. Settle down. Don't act like a transient. Don't act like a temporary resident. You know, I I was talking to a woman one time who said, you know, I'm an army brat. I said, what was that like? And she said, well, you know, we some of you here are army brats. And She said, you know, you move around so much and you she said, you have to relearn some things when you become an adult because as a child and teenager, when you're bouncing around so much, you really learn not to develop long-term relationships because if you get too close to somebody, it's just going to break your heart because you're moving in a year or two. And she said, so we, you know, Army Brass, you know, it's legendary that we we have a hard time uh, bonding, you know, in long-term relationships, and so we have to really be intentional about this sort of thing. I said, well, how did your parents deal with that? Because I knew her parents were believers. And she said, well, my mother... Uh, every time we moved to a new post, she would immediately plant a garden. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I don't know if she got that from Jeremiah 29, but it's great advice. Wherever you go, build a house, plant a garden. Move in, settle down, you're, you're going to be there. That's your home. And I find some people who come to Memphis, and it's not just young people, maybe particularly young, young adults, but it's also some others who come. They think, maybe I'm just passing through. Yeah, I'm not sure I like this city. I'm kind of, you know, it's arm's length. I'm going to look at it and see if I like the Grizzlies or see, see if there's enough entertainment here or see if there's too much crime in this city or whatever it is or the schools are not so good. And I'm just, you know, I'll, I'll move way out so that I can get my life as nice as I can get it. And then I'll look at this city from a distance and see if I think it's worth staying here. If that's the way you're moving, that's not a Christian way to move. And I tell you right now, you may as well go ahead and move. I remember a guy in Chattanooga when I was pastoring there 25 years ago. He just never could fit in. He was always critical of the business community in Chattanooga. He said, you know, the business community of Chattanooga is run by a few families. And if you don't fit in with the families, you're not going to be able to make progress in this city. And I'm thinking in my mind, you may as well just move to Atlanta right now. Just, just go on. You know, I happen to know some of those families. I like those families. And I'd be happy to work for those families, you know. Learn to love the families. Is our city run by families? Great. Learn to love the families. Is it run by somebody else? Great. Learn to love them. Get in with the city. Learn to love it. So you must not only love the city you're in and love the nation you're in, you must learn to like it. So how can can God command me to like something? Well, he commands you to rejoice all the time. I suppose you can rejoice about the city you live in. You must learn to love the place you're in. You bond from your heart and when your heart is engaged in a place then you build your house, you plant your garden, you settle in, you become part of the economy. You're seeking to contribute to the whole. Last night Larry Jensen uh, uh, quoted Drew Holcomb Holcomb, who, you know, uh, there's a nice little video that he's done about Memphis but Larry quoted him as saying, you know, uh, Drew said, I live in Nashville because I'm a musician, and that's where my type of music is produced and sold in Nashville. He said, my heart's in Memphis. He says, here's the difference. Those of you from Nashville, don't take this too personally, but uh, Larry said last night that Drew said, when people move to Nashville, they move there to get something. When people move to Memphis, they move to give something. You know, that's a pretty good way of putting it. And it's one reason that I love our city. Because if you're going to really be a citizen in our city, you're going to be giving. You're going to be looking for ways to give. And that's exactly the way you you connect. So that's what Jeremiah is saying to them. These Jews who had no idea how to live in a religiously pluralistic setting. He says, you plug in. You become part of this economy. You take this economy to heart. When we're told that our tax base in Memphis is eroding, that's a personal concern of yours. You're trying to think, how do I contribute to building the tax base in Memphis proper? That becomes a Christian concern because we build houses and we plant gardens and we settle in here. I'm concerned about it. As a, not just because I'm a pastor, I'm a Christian. So I'm concerned about the Memphis economy. I want to be informed and I want to vote in a knowledgeable way. And I want to write letters that are helpful and make comments that are helpful. And I want to be positive. So we engage in society and economy. Secondly, we engage in family life. Take wives and sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, I've, I've heard people say, you know, people who are childbearing age, I'm not sure I want to bring kids into this world. It's so wicked. It's going in such a bad direction. And it's a dangerous place to live. I'm just not sure I want to bring children up in this in this society. Jeremiah would have none of that. None of it. Why do you think you bring your kids into the world? Why do you think that you should be eager to have children? Is it because, So you can watch them grow up and have fun and they can be your entertainment in your old age? Well, I'll tell you by testimony, they are entertainment in your old age. But that's not the reason that we have children is so that we can be entertained by their happy lives. We have children to disciple them like we do the children of all the nations so they could walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and be salt and light with us and lay down their lives for the kingdom of God. That's the reason we have children. And so when you make an argument like that, it's just the opposite of why Christian parents want to have children. And that's the reason it's such a, a grievance to us when our children go off the ranch, when they choose another god. When they abandon the kingdom of God, it's such a tragedy because the whole purpose is found in your baptismal vows. To rear this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord so they become worshipers and workers in the kingdom of God. And child rearing is the most intense form of Christian discipleship. It's a subset of Christian discipleship. It's the most intense form of it. It's the most influential Christian discipleship. That's the reason you bring kids in, so you can disciple them, train them up, and empower them, and then coach them right on through as long as you live. Jeremiah is saying, have you all forgotten why you're here? Did you think God put you in the Holy Land so that you could just luxuriate in your self-protected, high-walled city and be safe for the next millennia? No, He put you there so that you could reach the world. Do you not remember what God said to Abraham? That I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations? And these people had completely forgotten this. They were trying to insulate themselves and make their lives comfortable and convenient. Somehow to accomplish that in this wicked city, surely we can do that. Surely we can build walls high enough, create institutions just for us, connect only with each other, and somehow be happy. And Jeremiah is contradicting all of those thoughts of comfort and convenience and saying you've even forgotten why your children are here. So he said, y'all get at it. Let's have some babies right here in Wicked Babylon, right here in the dangerous place. You may lose your babies, but let's have them. If you lose them for the sake of the kingdom of God, that's the highest honor that could ever be afforded a human being. Thirdly, we engage in society and civic life. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, if it was provocative and shocking to the Israelites that God commanded them to engage society in its economy and to build their families there and be happy about it, this was absolutely absurd to them. Why? Well, because look at the fourth word in verse 7, the word welfare. Gentlemen, that's the word shalom. And for an Israelite, shalom was given to God's people. Shalom is what was given to Jerusalem. Jerusalem means city of peace, city of welfare. Shalom belongs to God's people, in God's city, in God's land. And we, the parallel would be we would say Shalom belongs to the new heavens and the new earth. So Jeremiah, preacher, you're telling me that I'm to say Shalom to a wicked pagan? That I'm to seek the kind of blessing that we've known in the Holy Land? I'm to seek that for him in his wicked city? And he has no faith in you. And he's actually attacked the Israelites and killed us and enchained us and taken us all 800 miles into exile. And I'm supposed to say, Shalom. Yes. And this would be the parable of the Good Samaritan right here. Who's your neighbor? then your neighbor is the one whose need you see, whose need you can meet. There's your neighbor. And when a Samaritan sees a Jew who traditionally hates him on the side of the road, abandoned, facing death, he stops and ministers to him. There's your neighbor. And this is truly shocking and traumatic news to God's people. You're to announce shalom. Shalom to this pagan city, even when you're a tiny minority and even if you're getting smaller. It's an amazing thing. Seek shalom for the city. Pray for shalom to the Lord. And then He gives a reason. For in its shalom, you will find your shalom. And this is kind of what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 2. As sojourners and exiles, live a good life because of what Christ has done for you. He has been put to death for His righteousness. If you get put to death for your righteousness, that's no problem at all. The problem is if you're unrighteous. So walk in the steps of Jesus, live the gospel life, demonstrate the holiness of Christ in your life, and then you can leave the results with God. This is really difficult because when you come to Jeremiah 50 and 51, you'll see a scorching condemnation of Babylon. Jeremiah makes it clear. God is going to wipe her out. She will be a nothing. He is going to completely destroy Babylon. That's in the same prophecy here. In Jeremiah's prophecy. So why is he saying, bring shalom? Because of the age in which we live. God has not yet brought His final judgment. But He will. And if you believe that, it's all the more reason why you should be merciful to poor old Babylon. Yes, she's wicked. But look what she's facing. Do you believe in the judgment of God or not? If you do, you know that you can wait. You don't have to execute judgment. You don't have to prove yourself right. You don't have to be vindicated right now. This is not the day of your vindication. This is the day of massive confusion. This is the day of unpopularity. This is the day of being incognito as one of God's sons. Nobody knows outside the church that you're a prince. Nobody knows that. So this is not the day for you to get up on your high horse, your big white horse, and ride through the city and have everybody bow down to you. Frankly, that day is coming. You will be on a white horse, and everyone will bow down to you. If you believe that, then you have what adults call delayed gratification. It's what we try to teach our five-year-olds. Have dessert after you eat. Don't eat your dessert before the meal. And Jeremiah is trying to say, children... Let's eat our meal. Let's eat eat from the four basic food groups. And dessert's going to come at the end. And it is coming. And judgment will come upon all those who have been hostile to you because you've been walking with Jesus. And absolute glory will come to you. Meanwhile, you engage society in its economy, in your family life, and in civic life. Now, I've put here something about uh, shalom um, let me ask you to ignore that. Turn your page over, and on the back side, what I want you to do is draw a, a, as big a circle as you can on that page. Just draw a circle on the on a blank page, <clears throat> maybe cover as much of the page as possible. Just draw a big circle. Now draw a smaller, you know, a, a tight circle within that circle. So if you've got a big circle here, put another circle in the middle of it, okay? dead center. So you've got a circle within a circle. Now if you would, uh, let's do a, a cross, but don't take it through the middle circle, just on the outer, between the inner circle and the outer circle. Do a horizontal and a vertical and two diagonals. So you end up with eight pieces of pie, you know what I mean? So make eight pieces of pie in the rim there between your inner circle and your outer circle. Now, in those pieces of pie and that inner circle, I want to try to describe what shalom is. And here's what Jeremiah is saying, that if you followers of Christ want shalom, you'll find the peace of God in bringing peace to your surrounding nation and city. So what we've said for some years here is that for us to have an experience, the real shalom of the peace of God, we have to bring peace to Memphis. And for Memphis to have peace, every neighborhood, 127 of them, 127 neighborhoods need to have shalom. And right now, only 11% of the Memphis population lives in a, city, in a neighborhood of choice. There are about 25 of those, but only 11% of the population lives in them. The rest of the 89% of Memphis' population lives in what we call distressed or very distressed neighborhoods. In other words, they don't have shalom. So let me try to describe what shalom is. Uh, And you can do this in any order you want to. But first of all, one slice of pie is family life. We Obviously, it's key, isn't it, for our neighborhoods. If they're to have peace, they've got to have strong families. A mom and a dad who are married and committed to each other and rearing their children in the home. That would be the ideal. That's shalom. Secondly, they need health care. They need affordable health care. When they get sick, they need to have a place to go to get treated. They need to have somewhere to go for preventative treatment. And we are in massive arrears, needless to say. Thirdly, they need education. They need a place where their kids can go and get a quality education. Fourthly, they need jobs that pay a livable wage. Livable wage jobs. There are all kinds of jobs, but you can't support a family of four on a lot of the jobs that are being offered to our under-resourced, distressed communities. They have nowhere to go To be trained, or they do have some places to go now, thank God. You can take a place like Advanced Memphis, training people how to get livable wage jobs. But by and large, much more work needs to be done. We need to have, and and as part of jobs, let me just say, we need local-owned businesses. Because that's where those jobs are going to come from. So, for example, the whole idea of minority-owned businesses is still very crucial in this city. As some of you know, Luke Yancey, he'll be retiring from his role as the director of uh, Mid-South Minority Business Council. And I think in the article in the Business Journal, it said that he he felt that he had probably been uh, involved in starting 100 minority companies over his time. Well, that's a great record, you know? 100 new companies. Why is it important to have African American-owned businesses? Because African American-owned businesses are the ones that are most likely to employ African-American people and bring them into the business and show them how to start a business. So if we're concerned, especially about the underemployment in the African-American neighborhood in poorer neighborhoods, that's the key way you do it. So for those of you who are in business, who have expertise, to be able to share your expertise and your contacts, to take an interest in an uh, an entrepreneurial African-American new business uh, starter is a great way to serve our city. Uh, So that shalom depends upon uh, livable wage jobs. Next, housing. There's got to be affordable housing for people. Next, law enforcement. There's got to be a good relationship between police and community. And, And, of course, we've seen in Charlotte these past days how upset people are. Why are they upset? You can argue about whether the man had a gun or he didn't have a gun. Did he have a gun or he have a book? I don't know. It looks like he had a gun. It also looks like he shouldn't have been shot. But I don't know. The investigation had not been done. We'll wait for the investigation. The point is not this particular case and whether it was justified or not. Here's the point. There have been centuries of abuse. And the African-American community in particular and the community of color feels as though nobody's taking notice. And now finally, with video uh, capacity, we are getting pictures that are shocking any reasonable mind. I mean, the case in Tulsa, you know, to add to Philando Castile and Charles Kinsey and, and uh, these, uh, the case in Charleston, all these other cases, just piling up one after the other. You know what I've not seen yet on, on uh, social media? I've not seen an instance of a white man being shot in similar circumstances. Has Anybody seen one of those? Where are the videos for that? So whether you think any particular case warrants being upset or not, let me tell you, there's an avalanche of cases. And underneath that, the cauldron that's boiling is the centuries of abuse that have never really been completely rectified. That's the problem. And we cannot have shalom if we don't have a commitment that we're all gonna buy into this problem and we're gonna use our resources to fix it. So if there's some 18-year-old African-American kid in uh, South Memphis who's abused by police, you ought to be personally offended by that because it's your community. You care about law enforcement, you care about justice. On the other hand, if someone's taking a shot or showing disrespect for a policeman, you ought to take that personally. This is your community. And we ought to be teaching people how to show respect for civil authorities. And furthermore, when we're wanting to protest, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do, we should do so lawfully. We don't just take over buildings that belong to other people. We don't throw bricks. There must be discipline, lawfulness. So black lives matter. And in order to show that black lives matter, we will sometimes engage in protests. I may be in one myself here coming up but we'll do it lawfully, we'll do it with license, we'll do it in the most peaceable manner possible. Because why? We're Christians. And God has told us how to live. And so the, that's, that's one of the problems we have now is that the, the, the so-called Black Lives Matter movement is breaking laws right and left. It's, it's chaotic. Christians are not chaotic. If you look at the civil rights movement, Dr. King and Thurgood Marshall... Uh, You'll find people who were thinking very strategically. They had clear goals, clear complaints, clear strategies, and they were law-abiding. Now, of course, we don't abide by the law when our conscience is being broken. So we believe in conscientious objection, and we believe in civil disobedience. When the law requires of us something we can't do or permits us from doing something we must do. For example, if the law says you can't evangelize in public, too bad, I'll break the law because it's binding my conscience that's bound by the Word of God. So there is a place for civil disobedience. But Christians are very careful about where those places are. It's only when you're commanded to do something you mustn't or or prohibited from doing something that you must. It's not because you're upset with wickedness. You don't break the law because you're upset with wickedness. Where, Where in the Scriptures do you get that sanction? Nowhere. So... We, we care about law enforcement. And then uh, next, the arts. Community has to have the arts, music, drama, painting, sculptures. So for that, to have shalom, it's got to be expressive and beautiful. And then lastly, eighthly, it's got to have good community leadership, political leadership, civic leadership. You'll find in every one of the 127 neighborhoods, there's a mayor. He's not elected. She's not elected. But there's a mayor in every one of them. And we need good informal mayors. People who are respected in every community that are bringing peace. Now, at the very center of that shalom circle is the spiritual life and the church. That's at the core of everything. That's the reason church planting and church revitalization is so important. You can't have shalom without it. And we're committed to this. We know that shalom comes from God. Jesus Christ said, Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. That's shalom. It's God's peace. So we'll work in all these realms knowing that ultimately shalom will only come when people bow the knee to the one true and living God. Only when the Babylonians give up on their God. And there are multiple gods, including Nebuchadnezzar, who was a god to them. Only when they give up or renounce those gods and embrace the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will they really have shalom. Meanwhile, we're going to be working on shalom from every conceivable angle with the proclamation of the gospel and without the proclamation of the gospel in the moment. So we'll work in education. We'll find our moments to share the gospel when it's appropriate. But we'll continue to seek to bring the best educational system we can. We'll seek to bring new businesses that employ people with livable wages. And when we get the opportunity, someone says to us, why are you doing this? You say, "I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you about why I'm doing this. You know, there's a verse in the Bible that says we're to seek the shalom of the city to which God has taken us. And He's taken me here. And I'm going to seek and pray for it just as God commanded me. You know, So it's not me. It's the God of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who loves this city and has commanded me to serve it. You See, I get my opportunity to evangelize. Let's move on. We've got about two minutes. Next page, Roman numeral number three. God commands us to believe His promises. A, watch out for false messages in the church. The false messages here were things are going to be all right. Or, we know from some other manuscripts, non-biblical manuscripts called the Babylonian Chronicle, that there appears to have been a little skirmish between the Jews and the Babylonians about half a year before Jeremiah wrote this letter. And two guys were killed. And we think they're the same guys that Jeremiah is talking about here. This guy Ahab and this guy Zedekiah. They're not the Ahab and Zedekiah that you're thinking of. They're different Ahabs and Zedekiah. But these two guys got up and said, look, Let's show our independence. Let's fight. Let's resist. Let's continue to build the walls. Let's throw bricks. And they got killed. And Jeremiah says it's going to be said of them that after they die, if you do that too, may you be like Ahab and Zedekiah. May you be burned in the fire. Do not throw bricks at Babylon. You live a peaceable life. You submit to your local authorities. You get engaged in civic life. Meanwhile, you're being God's people and you're sharing the gospel. You're evangelizing and realizing this is the only way you're going to ultimately bring shalom. And when you get opportunities, like Daniel had, you take them. He was in high authority in in the, in the Persian kingdom that followed Babylon. Take it. Use it. Use your influence wherever it takes you. But these messages were... We're, let's just live for the moment because we're going back to Jerusalem soon. And that's what you get with the health and wealth prosperity gospel. You can have it now. If you just have faith, you can have that big car. You can have that big house. You, you can double your pay. Just believe. That is rubbish. That's the lie of trying to have your Jerusalem right here. And these people were told, you're going to have to wait 70 years. But, uh, Jeremiah told them precisely how long it was going to take. 70 years. Don't believe anything less than that. Here's what I'm telling you from the New Testament. We don't know when this next period is over. But when it is, you'll know it. Jesus Christ is coming back in all of His glory. He brings the new Jerusalem with Him. You're completely transformed with a new body. And you'll be in a pure society. You'll know when that happens. And until then, you're in Babylon. So stop faking it like you can get Jerusalem here. You can only get it in the Spirit. You can't get it physically. So give up on the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Likewise, I mentioned just a moment, being on the bridge. That's, that's liberation theology. Our duty is to liberate all those who are oppressed through any means that accomplishes that purpose. Christians say no. Ends are important and means are important to Christians because we're walking with the Lord. So we believe in liberation, but don't lose, use your liberation to bring other people into servanthood and destroy their property. You're seeking the liberation of everybody around you through real Christian spiritual liberation. And uh, lastly, uh, believe the true messages. The message, of course, in our case, that judgment is coming and the new heavens and the new earth are coming. And, well, that's next to last. The very last one, there are severe consequences. Verses 15 through 23. That's what Jeremiah is telling them. Severe consequences. Number one, for those of you who believe the message he's saying to them, God's going to take you back. For those who seek Him, you will find Him. If you seek Him with all your heart, that day's going to come. So there'll be tremendous consequences. For those who reject it, there are consequences of judgment and you go the way of Babylon. When you start trying to destroy Babylon, you go the way of Babylon unless it's an issue of conscience. So this is the man and his political environment. This is the man and his nation. This is the man and his city when he is in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this precious text of Scripture which powerfully shows us how to live in the day in which we are living. So we pray that You'll help us to do our best knowing that this will never become Jerusalem. This will never become the new heavens and the new earth. But... It is to be a place of shalom as far as we have anything to do with it. And we're to give our lives and our prayers for it. So we pray for Memphis. We pray for Tennessee. We pray for the surrounding states. We pray for our country. God, please have mercy upon our nation and upon our city. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.